Good morning and welcome to the 11th in our series of Urban Transport Next Conversations with a live online audience on topics that will help determine the future of urban transport, this time uh, looking at urban freight. So whether you're spending your lunchtime listening live to us or whether you're listening later on the podcast or watching the playback on YouTube, thanks so much for joining us. I'm Becky Fuller. I'm Assistant Director at the Urban Transport Group and we're the ones hosting these events. For those of us who don't know UTG, um, we bring together the public sector transport authorities for the UK's largest urban areas, so Transport for London, Transport for Greater Manchester, Transport for West Midlands and all the other major metros as well, serving over 20 million people. We try to think about what's next for urban transport and support our members to implement that thinking on the ground and also to learn from each other as a network. It's great to see so many of you listening out there um, in the audience. We've got a great event for you today and it follows hot on the heels of our Delivering the Future Freight Report that we published on Monday. And I'm pleased to say that we've got the author of that report, Dr Claire Linton, on our panel this afternoon. Claire's our policy and research advisor here at UTG and she conducts research across a range of policy areas but always with an eye to decarbonisation and environmental sustainability. We also have Maggie Simpson, who's Director General of the Rail Freight Group, the representative body for rail freight in the UK. And chairing uh, today's discussion is Stephen Joseph, who spent an amazing 30 years at the helm of Campaign for Better Transport and is now a transport policy consultant, chair of the Foundation for Integrated Transport and a director of the Transport for New Homes project. You out there in the audience can also be part of this conversation in three ways. Firstly, by putting your short, sharp questions into the questions box. And you can also vote for your favourite questions to, to push them up the list. Stephen will be picking these up in the final section of the conversation. You can also participate uh, using the comments channel. But please, please don't post your questions in there because we might not spot them. And of course, you can also comment on Twitter using the hashtag UTG next. So enjoy the event and over to you, Stephen. Thanks very much, Becky, and welcome everybody to this. Uh, if you're um, uh, joining us live, uh, then congratulations for joining us rather than Prime Minister's questions. Um, and uh, I, I, I think this is uh, such an important topic. Uh, freight tends to get uh, lost in a lot of transport policy debates, I think it's fair to say, and um, I'm sure um, Maggie in particular is fed up with the O and freight um, in transport discussions. Um, so what um, we're hoping to do over the next hour is to explore um, aspects of freight as it affects urban areas and the city regions and to um, look at what, what has been happening, what has what is happening now and, and what should happen in the future. Um, well, look, can I start by asking um, both Maggie and Claire, um, starting with Maggie, how you got into this? How did you get into um, uh, freight and, um, uh, and uh, well, in Maggie's case, rail freight? Yeah, thanks, Stephen. And, uh, you know, it's an absolute pleasure to be here today uh, talking to you all about uh, about urban freight and, and how rail can, can support that. So I've been at the Rail Freight Group now for... Um, well, two more years than I care to think. I've been leading it since 2012 and I joined in, in 2005. Um, but I first came into rail freight when the railways last had an arms length body, the Strategic Rail Authority. And at the time that that was, uh, was being established, I was working in one of the, uh, the organisations that, that formed up the SRA, working actually on passenger rail franchising at the time. And the opportunity came up to go into the freight team there. Uh, to, to work on on the first rail freight strategy and uh, as soon as I, I came to freight I, I just rather fell in love with it um, it's so much more interesting than passenger transport in my experience and, and takes you right across the country and right across the economy too so uh, so I, I've stuck with rail freight pretty much since uh, since that happened in, in 2000 uh, and today, uh, Rail Freight Group, which I lead, represents around 120 businesses uh, from freight train operators and customers right through to ports, quarries, terminal operators, manufacturers and supply chain businesses. So, so it's a real privilege for me uh, to be involved with such a, an interesting and vibrant sector. Claire, would you like to say how you got into this, though? I know, I know freight is only one of your um, many interests. It is, yeah. 
So um, I've been at UTG for nearly six years now. And in that time, I've kind of worked across a whole range of policy areas. But as um, Becky was saying in the introduction there, my kind of real passion and interest is sustainability. Um, and I think that's kind of how I've come to be interested in freight because um, it's such a big part of our transport system. And I think, as Stephen said, often gets overlooked. Um, and I think as well, we have a lot of kind of choices we can make in how we make our passenger journeys. We can think about, you know, taking different modes or... But actually, when we're thinking about freight as consumers, usually there's a default option and it just turns up or, you know, we expect things to be on the shelves. So that kind of level of choice isn't necessary there. So I think we need to think about freight in different ways. So, um, yeah, that's kind of how I've come to be interested in freight, particularly from the kind of decarbonisation perspective, but also kind of more broadly on how it impacts across society too. Thanks very much. Um, well, I thought we'd, we'd start by seeing... Um, What's changed in freight in particular? Um, what's um, what's been happening, uh, obviously, in the last few years uh, and, and with COVID? Um, uh, what what is is going on? Uh, what has been going on now? Uh, I mean, Maggie, I think uh, your your industry's had uh, had a resurgence, hasn't it? Yes, I think it's been uh, been been really interesting. And you know, just reflecting on what Claire was saying there about um, you know people's perception of freight and, and how it matters to them. If, um, so, my colleagues at UK Major Ports Group actually this morning have just uh, published some public awareness surveying they've been doing about perceptions of freight uh, across all modes actually, and uh, it's come up with some really interesting results, including that people's appreciation of lorry drivers. Uh, has increased by more than the appreciation of policemen. I don't know whether that's to do with the Met Police's investigation of Boris's party or not, but um, but it, the, 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 the statistic that caught my eye was that um, nearly half the public, 48%, agree or strongly agree with the statement, I think more about the process by which goods are transported and delivered to me than I did a few years ago. And the same, almost the same percentage, strongly agreeing with, I pay more attention to where things I order online come from than I used to. At the start of the year, and I think what we're really seeing is that increased awareness, not just uh, as individuals and consumers, although we are, but in policymakers, stakeholders, and uh, and government, both at national and regional level. And you know, reports like this one for, from UTG, are, you know, are really good. And I know UTG have, have published reports on on freight before, but I, I would say they've been the exception rather than the rule. And we're seeing now. You know, Transport for North are presently consulting on, on their freight strategy. We've seen really solid freight uh, content in, in work by Midlands Connect, Transport, Transport East, the other subnationals, Scottish Government have a, a rail freight policy. Uh, and, and even, you know, in Westminster, much more commitment to talking about freight and being engaged in the freight discussion from, from central government than we have ever seen before. And as so if you peel back the onions as, as to why that is, you know, I think... I mean, in essence, it, it started from a problem. So when people found that they couldn't get the things that they wanted, and whether that was toilet rolls or petrol or more recently lateral flow tests, it, it starts people people's understanding that normally they can get the things that they want. And of course, I think we've seen the consequences of that supply chain disruption. And obviously, you know, sometimes it's frankly just a bit of a nuisance. You can't get the thing you want or your parcel's delayed or whatever. But actually, you know, when we saw the the petrol pump shortages, it was really seriously impacting on people's lives. People couldn't get to appointments, to work, to schools and so on. And we've also seen that when freight fails, you know, it has a nasty habit of turning political very quickly. So, you know, the army was sent to drive petrol tankers. I mean, I think by the time they trained them how to do it, they didn't really need them. But but it was political almost immediately. And, you know, empty shelves bring down governments. So, so that impetus that we're seeing to think about freight and, and to pay attention to it has probably come from those supply chain glitches that we've seen, but actually what we need to do is translate that into really positive action about better understanding and knowledge and therefore about better planning for freight, which is, I think, what we've been lacking for many years. And, and, and rail has seen a resurgence, is that right? Yeah, so I think if I look, you know, specifically at, at rail, um, you know, if, if you ignored coal, which has gone for all the good reasons, then, then many of the other sectors were on long-term trajectories of, of growth. But the last couple of years have really accelerated that. And multi, you know, there are multiple factors in that mix. Uh, the environment and sustainability is absolutely top of the list. So, you know, businesses are being driven not 
not by government commitments to 2050 necessarily, but by, you know, boardroom pressure to become more sustainable and, you know, the financial markets who are now looking uh, you know, where they place their investments to make sure that they're investing in sustainable companies. And we're seeing that, you know, absolutely coming through in people's choices. We're also, you know, that that's supply chain disruption, um, you know, from both Brexit and, and then COVID, causing people to think differently about, about their supply chains. I've seen, you know, other commentators say it's, it's not about just in time anymore, it's about just in case. So people are looking at having more resilient supply chains that might mean using more than one mode it's generally meaning that there's a bit more stockholding going on some more warehousing which often links well to a rail offer people are changing the ports of entry that they use to and from the uk for their imports and exports and that's perhaps you know diluting some of the row row towards unitized which is helping rail freight so all of these factors are coming together to see more people really now wanting to exploit what they do on rail um, you know, and even in traditional sectors like construction materials, you know, the, the amount of construction material we're moving by rail is off the scale at the moment. And whilst big projects like HS2 are a part of that, they're, they're far from, from all of that. We're seeing almost record numbers of, of construction trains every week, intermodal and domestic intermodal. So, you know, warehouse to warehouse within the UK, as well as to and from ports. And then new models, you know, express freight with actual real services now now operating for the first time in that market as well. So, so it's new things and, and, and it's more of the things that we've been doing for some customers, expanding out to a wider customer base. Thanks very much. Um, uh, Claire, what do, you, uh, what do you think has changed? Um, I mean, you did a, a, an earlier version of this report um, in um, 2015, I think. Um, uh, what what's changed uh, uh, coming back to this for the city regions and freight? Yeah, thanks, Stephen. Yeah, so we first published Delivering the Future in 2015, as Stephen said there, and I think lots of the points Maggie was making there are things, you know, we would reflect on as changes in that period, but, you know, that was kind of a big part of the impetus for coming back to the report at this time was reflecting on these changes. So I think, you know, greater recognition of the climate crisis, you know, sustainability has become an ever more important part of the kind of transport agenda and, and freight as part of that. And, you know, if we think about 2015, um, we had a, you know, climate uh, carbon reduction target of 80% by 2050. That's now a net zero target at a national level. So we've seen that shift and, you know, ever more city regions and cities declaring a climate emergency and setting really ambitious net zero targets. So kind of freight needs to be a part of that if we're going to hit hit those targets. And, you know, we talk a lot about what we need in the report to kind of hit those targets, including things sort of modal shift to more um, rail and water freight, but also thinking about how we decarbonise our road freight, because we are always going to need some some element of road freight as part, part of that system. Um, obviously, the coronavirus pandemic has had, um, you know, transformative changes on the ways we live and work and consume. Um, and I think that's kind of impacted on freight. So, you know, you know, e-commerce was growing, you know, far before the start of the pandemic, but has only been kind of accelerated through that. And then um, as Maggie mentioned there, you were kind of seeing express um, rail freight services running to kind of meet some of that e-commerce need now as well, which is a really interesting kind of new sort of growing innovation in the sector. So, um, yeah, I'd be interested to uh, hear a bit more about some of those those trials and pilots in a bit from Maggie. Um, and then I think... The two other things I would say is, um, obviously, we left the European Union, um, which has kind of had an impact on how goods uh, move in and out of the country, but also kind of on the workforce. We saw driver shortages last year and the impact of that. And, you know, that, that again, was not entirely due to Brexit. You know, we... We had we have an aging workforce um, in the freight sector, and that's having impacts across the sector. Um, and it was difficult to attract drivers before that, and we saw less um, tests taking place, you know, driver tests taking place during the pandemic. So, you know, it's a multitude of factors, but you know, Brexit has played a part in kind of what we're seeing in freight now. And then, I think one of the other kind of major changes is kind of how we think about technology. Um, I think we've seen a growth in attention on things like autonomous vehicles and drones and how we use data in in freight and kind of optimising delivery routes, those kind of things. And 
and on kind of how linking back to the workforce um we employ people so we've seen an increase in the gig economy and how that that's maybe more on the van side than the hgv side but that's changed how we employ people in the freight sector so um you know we think about deliveroo and how people get their, their takeaways all of these kind of things that have been changed by technology i think largely over the last kind of decade five to ten years really so I think the sector's seen a huge amount of change over over recent years and and I, and I don't think it's stopping either I think this change is still kind of underway and happening and um, will continue to kind of transform the sector in in the coming years as well. Um, you, I think you also said to me when we were talking about this is there's a, um, a text being applied to curbside management um, where there are clearly um, you know freight is one of the uses of, of the curbside uh, in, in city streets. Um, do you want to say a bit more about that? Because that does come through from your report. Yeah, I think, um, so we see ever increasing demands on the curbside and, you know, we want to improve facilities for walking and cycling. And um, we see, you know, shared mobility in terms of kind of pick up and drop off. We want bike share on the streets. We want e-scooters on the streets, we want EV charging. And all of these things are putting demands on our street space. So kind of how we manage that is is really important. And I think there's been various studies and, and kind of experiments around kind of dynamic management of the curb using new technology. Um, so, you know, you might increase space for walking and cycling in the peak um, so that people can get into work and then you might have more space for deliveries and drop-offs at other times of day but you can use kind of digital technologies to manage that so I think that's an interesting and um, space which is kind of growing in attention and I think I think it also links into something which we'll maybe pick up a bit more but around kind of how we plan for freight and and thinking ahead and making sure that we don't it's not an afterthought so you know you plan a new development and then you're like oh how are we going to service this development where our delivery is going to be made to um making sure you integrate that from the beginning um is really important i think uh, thanks uh, uh, do you want to say a bit more about some of the that the case studies and the changes that you found in the report because one of the things i noticed from looking at it um was just the sheer amount of innovation and experimentation going on uh, in this sector, particularly in relation to uh, local freight deliveries. Um, and, and actually, I mean, Maggie has also referred to things like express freight as new forms of rail freight as well. So maybe um, start with Claire, but Maggie might want to say something about this too, about what's changing now? What, what are the things that are coming on that are happening Sure, yeah. Well, maybe I'll talk about a couple of my favourites and, and more focus on the kind of local stuff and the water stuff. And then Maggie can come in on, on all the great stuff that's happening on rail because I know she'll know more about those case studies than I do. Um, so thinking about kind of local deliveries, one of the things I'm, I'm really interested in is kind of this idea of portering, which is thinking about how we do more of the last mile or sometimes they think about it in, in walking terms the last 200 metres of a delivery on foot. So I think um, Genuke Cargo and Ford did a pilot study in London and, and, and they focus on a dense urban core because you kind of need that density to do the kind of deliveries on foot. And they looked at um, how they could use a single van doing like drop-offs with four porters um, doing the kind of last 200 metres of that delivery on foot. Um, and they and they use kind of data and technology to look at the optimal drop-offs for those based on the packages they had to deliver. And they found that this one van, oh, and it was five porters, could achieve the same as five vans in a dense city centre. So um, they were kind of saving fuel and efficiency. And actually, one of the things I think is really interesting about that is potentially you're encouraging a more active job in in a job that has historically been very sedentary and potentially has quite a lot of health consequences by being a very sedentary job you know sitting in fumes it's like it's, it can be quite a kind of there's a lot of health risks associated with that job and you're transforming it to be a much more active job so it's a much healthier role so I think that's a really interesting case study that has could could be really interesting and you know would be very much focused on an urban core but you know if we want to see less vehicles in our city centres has the potential to kind of deliver deliver that and then um one of my other really favorite case studies from the report is um guys and st thomas's nhs foundation in again central london um and they 
established a consolidation hub at Dartford in 2019 to try and reduce the number of vehicles coming into central London to service those hospitals. Um, so before the hub opened, they had 160 deliveries a day to their central London sites. And the hub, using the hub, has reduced truck trips in by 90%. Um, and they found that it's removed 36,000 truck deliveries from central London every year, which is just huge. I was astounded by that. And then in 2021, they launched a pilot to use riverboat services to bring in some of those supplies from that Dartford hub into the hospitals in central London. And then they use e-cargo bikes to do the last mile bit from the riverboat to, to the hospitals. So that's just an initial pilot, but that's kind of hoping to kind of mitigate some of the remaining 10% of truck trips that they're still getting into the city centre. And they're also looking at whether they can introduce some electric trucks to pick up those remaining trips that they can't quite yet do via kind of the consolidation or the riverboat. So, yeah, I think it's a really, really ambitious scheme. And, you know, it's part of their ambitious um, climate emission reduction targets to kind of try and reduce their, their transport impact. So, yeah, I was really impressed by that. And I was really impressed at the kind of the broad thinking of how they've used consolidation, they've got the riverboat services, e-cargo bikes, and now they're thinking about electric um, trucks for that last remaining bit of road road freight deliveries that they've still got. So, yeah, I thought it was really, really ambitious and interesting um, case study there. Thanks. Um, uh, Maggie, what, um, uh, what do you think is changing now? What innovation are you seeing? You've mentioned uh, express parcels and uh, express freight. Um, are you seeing other kinds of innovation uh, in your sector and more broadly? Yes, I think, you know, if I think about the urban context, it's important to remember we do different kinds of, of freight transport. And when we think about freight transport, you know, it's it's right and proper that we think about those last miles. But, you know, cities use lots and lots of different consumables. So let me give you an example from a couple of years ago in London. Um around the back of the Battersea power station redevelopment, around near the luxury flats is, is the busiest construction railhead in Europe, I think. Um, it's effectively been building those flats by bringing in its goods by rail, and they innovated in... It's a tiny, tiny little strip of land, very constrained, and they innovated in something which is not um, not what you'd think of when you think of innovation because it's a massive, great piece of, of handling equipment. Called, they call mm. it a super grab. Um, but by deploying that super grab, they managed to increase the amount that they could handle through that terminal so that all the inbound product came in on train. Uh, it was already quite a high number, but that moved them up to all their inbound deliveries of those construction materials coming in by rail. So that's innovation at the kind of big and dirty end of the scale, if you like, uh, in terms of, of those essential construction terminals. In terms of the express freight, we've got now the first... Um, trial service for Orion, working for Royal Mail, operating on the West Coast since the back end of last year. Um, that's uh, using a converted passenger unit. Um, you know, they've done some trials into Houston last year, so many of you will have seen photographs of that uh, actually happening. Uh, so that is is now up and running. Uh, that links, obviously, to Royal Mail, building a brand new rail link distribution centre in Daventry on the rail terminal there. Um, you can, you know, that is in construction right now and will, you know, help them be much more active on, on rail than they have been. And then, uh, you know, the other part of that, using parcels on passenger trains, that, you know, that, that's something that's been happening for a decade or more now, but in the last 12 months, we've seen a real sort of escalation of that with cross-country buying into that network and some really innovative trials for one or two of the parcel carriers uh, in that space as well happening at the back end of last year. So, actually getting uh, away from only the kind of slightly niche essential products that were being moved since biomedical and, and, and products like that, but in, into the parcels markets and trials happening with that as well. So I think, uh, you know, there's a lot to go out and what we're seeing is real impetus from people like Network Rail now to, to make sure that they're playing their part in getting those services functioning and running into whether that's, you know, city centre terminals or edge of town destinations and I think we can expect to see more of that this year. Um, that's uh, that's really interesting. Um, I just wondered, uh, I mean I wanted to move on to talk about what should happen, you know, what, what are the things that we want to move, you know, that should 
make freight, particularly in, in uh, city regions, work better. Um, as a bridge to that, um, uh, Claire, maybe you want to say, well, both of you might want to say something about the local authority role in this. Um, uh, uh, Claire, your report talks about particular case studies of where the local authority have taken a kind of lead role in um, uh, changing local freight. Um, and I just wondered what your, your thoughts were about that, about where, where local authorities can play. And do, do local authorities, I noticed a comment in the Q&A about um, uh, do local authority officers and councillors have the right awareness and, and skills to, to pick up on this? Yeah, so I think local authorities can play a really important role in freight. Um, you know, they understand the local context in ways that, um, you know, maybe central government don't. Um, and it, it enables them to kind of ensure that you kind of... It, any changes are helping to deliver wider policy objectives as well. So when we think, you know, going back to talking about, you know, wanting our city centres to have maybe fewer cars or fewer vehicles, you know, how how do you think about that and ensure that you're not affecting kind of freight operations and that kind of thing? So I think they they play a really important role in in thinking across the piece on kind of urban transport policy and and that kind of perspective. Um, I also think they can play a really important role in kind of knowing the local stakeholders and bringing them together and encouraging kind of partnership working across different different stakeholders at a local level. That said, you know, we all know that, um, you know, local authorities have been increasingly resource constrained over over recent years and and having the capacity to deliver across all of this urban transport policy is really challenging. Um, so, yeah, I think, you know, they're somewhat constrained in having the internal resource and capacity to kind of build on that um, effectively. Um, but I think there's some really good stuff going on. So um, you mentioned there's some case studies in the report about, you know, local authorities that are doing good things. So um, Nottingham City Council have, have got one of the most ambitious um, carbon reduction targets of um, any anywhere in the UK. I think they've probably got the, the most ambitious. So they're aiming to be carbon neutral by 2028. Um, and as part of um, trying to achieve that ambition, they have been really focused on their own fleet of vehicles. So they've now got 140 fully electric vehicles in their own council fleets, including um, in 2019, they got the first battery electric cage tippers, which were collecting waste from the city centre. So they're kind of putting it into operation in the city centre and really, you know, putting zero emission freight vehicles into the city. And then in 2020, they got two um, electric refuse collection trucks as well. So I think they were the first, both the battery electric cage tippers and the refuse collection trucks were the first of their kind in the UK. Um, and the refuse collection trucks are reducing carbon emissions by 52 tonnes a year each um, and saving council taxpayers £32,000 a year compared to their diesel equivalents. So, you know, they're, they're paying their way, they're reducing carbon and paying their way in kind of um, the decarbonisation of um, um, refuse collection in, in Nottingham. And I think it's also a, a really important to remember that that kind of waste collection is, is a really important part of freight as well. And sometimes that gets forgotten, even by me. Um, we think of deliveries and, and getting all our deliveries and our goods. And actually, the stuff going the other way is just as important. Um, and then I'll just mention Leeds as well. Um, so they, again, are trying to work on their own fleet. So they're aiming to have a zero or ultra low emission vehicle fleet by 2025 and they've now got 300 EVs but I think one of the really interesting parts of their work is they've got 44 EVs available to local businesses in the public sector to try um, so um, that launched in September 2020 and so um, over 100 organisations have taken part 7% have gone on to buy or lease an EV and 47% are looking to do so um, and it was really interesting because one of the local breweries that I really like um, borrowed an electric van la last year and um, they were posting on Twitter about how much they loved it and how they were working out if they could um, get one for their own fleet. And I saw it drive past the other day. I saw them drive past an electric van and I was really excited. I was like, I'm so glad they've gone for it. So, um, yeah, I can order right. beer from my local brewery now and know it's delivered in their electric van. Um um, Maggie, what what would you like to see local authorities do? Yes, um, so perhaps extend that to the subnational bodies as yeah. well. Actually, since you mentioned transport to north, so I mean, I mean, Claire made a really good point early on, which is that uh, you know one of one of the 
one of the things we have to do and one of the things that actually really isn't done at all well is plan for how we want for it to be delivered uh, and by that i don't i don't mean having aspirations for you know a, a target targets for decarbonisation are great but they don't that's not the same as planning for freight and you know, there's a beautiful example in the report about um you know a public realm improvement that put down you know lovely paving and then everybody was really annoyed when it got smashed up by hgvs doing deliveries and you know i look at that and i think well that was that was obvious wasn't it you know if you hadn't planned for how those shops and businesses were going to get their fulfillment then inevitably your lovely paving was going to be smashed up by HGV. So why didn't you think of that in the first place before you invested in the paving? And that's a really micro example of failing to plan for freight, but we see it all over. And the Centre for London have just done a report last year about uh, the lack of industrial land in London. Um, and I think, you know, without wishing to sell somebody else's webinar, you know, they've got a webinar coming up about that because it's a real challenge now in London because there is so little industrial land. The land value for it is rising significantly. And of course, industrial land is everything from, you know, small businesses who might be coffee roasters, but it might also be waste processing or it might be, you know, the kind of hub where you want to charge your electric vehicle or, or a whole host of other things. And, you know, when I talked to people in there, they found over the years that because a combination of planning, zoning, land value and pressure for house building, that the land on which they can occupy and do freight has is, is been eroded and that pushes people outside of cities so more warehousing is now done on the periphery of cities. And that means that you effectively have then to use an HGV to get into the city. And, you know, for us in rail freight, there's real pressure on those urban construction terminals that we have. There's one in Woking that's a bit of a cause celebre at the moment where the local council has, you know, passed motions to ask Network Rail to kindly move this monstrosity out of the city because they want to build houses without any recognition that in order to build houses, they're going to need some construction materials. And if they can't come in on a train, they're going to come in on an HGV. Mm. So, so there's a real disconnect here between the aspirations that people have for freight to be delivered a at all and B in a more sustainable or different way and the planning framework, both from actual land use planning right through to the strategies that we deploy, they don't connect. And we have to do that because I think the you know rail rail freight road freight all freight is is a private sector endeavour. It's competitive and people will work to meet the demands that are placed on them. And those demands come ultimately from their customers. And if we want people to do things differently, and, and we do, and and you know the freight providers want to meet the aspirations of their cities as well, but they can't do that if there isn't the power or the space or the land available to them to make those changes. And we've got to connect that up properly because at the moment we, you know, we just see things which are which are contentious a lot of the time. And I think the other point just to make on that is that. It, it's an interface point between local, regional, national, and actually global in many cases. So if we if we take a decision and you know we see that in things like you know the ultra low emissions zone in London, which you know, is is a road freight thing, but if we've got different standards for how lorries should be designed and built in different cities within the same country, it's not going to work because all it does is it bounces the more polluting lorries out of London and sends them somewhere else. So we we need to be managing those those local and regional ambitions which which do drive up standards but we need to be coordinated about that so that the market can respond in a way that's cost effective because um, because if it's not cost effective ultimately it ends up on the consumer it adds to the cost of living crisis if we increase the cost of moving freight um uh, that's a, a, a really interesting, as I say, bridge into kind of where we should go next on freight. Uh, I noticed, by the way, I think Helen Miller has put in the chat that Leeds has safeguarded its canal walls and railway sidings through the planning system to protect the opportunity for non-road-based freight. And I imagine that's the sort of thing you'd like more authorities to be doing, Maggie. Um, yeah, absolutely. So I think for us, it is it is about the protection of those land sites. It's also about... Uh, inappropriate adjacent development so if, if you've got an activity whether it's you know warehousing or waste handling or aggregates or you know some of these activities are are inherently maybe a bit noisy you, you know and so if you then surround them by plats you you end up in a, in a no-win situation for everyone so it's about the 
the protection and the zoning in effect of what you can do. And, you know, what, what I see in my members is that because they are often having to, you know, chase planning, you know, objective planning, do they, their sort of security of tenure isn't there. So the investments that they might be able to make in screening or, you know, new technologies and that are harder to make because they, they don't necessarily think that they're going to be there in 10 years' time because they think that they'll be CPO'd or the land will be taken away from them. So so not only is it a problem for, for having those activities in, in the city, it also stops people doing the right thing sometimes as well. Uh, yeah. Ed, uh, uh, you, you mentioned the planning issue in your report, but it sounds like that's a really important issue um, uh, as one of the key things that needs to happen in the future. Yeah, and just a few reflections on you know the, all the great points Maggie was making there. But I think it was interesting the point about kind of being pushed further out of the urban core when you kind of don't protect that land in the centre. And and if we want to shift to more zero emission vehicles and and cargo cycle deliveries, you know at the moment our zero emission vehicles are, are range constrained and you know they're getting better all the time. But if your if your um, depot is pushed further and further out of the city then your ability to kind of do those do those trips with those lower emission modes is maybe is maybe restricted somewhat. So yeah, I think it's really important to think about those things in in our in our planning processes. And um yeah, I think it's 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 really important. Um, and and um uh, we've got we're starting to get some good questions in so I, I want to leave some time for those. Um uh, just Finally, what do you, what are the things that you think? What are the other things that you think should change? What are the things that you've highlighted in your report that you'd really like to see changed in this? Um, and, yeah, um, yeah. So we've we've talked a bit there about um, kind of investing in um, infrastructure and for modal shift. So I won't go back too much into that, but sort of you know making sure that we protect protect the land that we need for that, and in you know protecting wharfs that kind of thing, um, so that we can ensure that we can deliver as much as possible possible by um rail and water um and then i think in terms of road freight we really need a clear pathway for how we're going to decarbonize um hgvs we kind of know what's coming on lighter goods vehicles but um in terms of heavy goods vehicles we've got this date in the future but no really clear pathway of what what the kind of roadmap looks like from here to there. Um, there's still kind of a lot of debate about what fuels we need to go with. And 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 that kind of inhibits people's ability to, to make those decisions to invest in those vehicles. Um, so I think we need we need leadership from central government on kind of what what the pathway is going to look like um, for decarbonising heavy goods vehicles in particular. And I think as well for light goods vehicles too, we 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 need kind of serious investment in the kind of fueling and charging infrastructure for those vehicles as well because we're, we're not there on that um and then i think one thing we haven't really we've touched on yet but is a really important part of kind of the freight picture and is is a really kind of big theme in our report is safety um so in terms of road freight in particular um you know it has a, a really big role to play in road safety um you know goods vehicles are involved in a disproportionate number of fatal and serious collisions on our roads and you know particularly in urban areas where they're kind of coming into more contact with pedestrians and cyclists and you know the other road users um you know it can be particularly dangerous so um a study from tfl showed that hgvs are involved in 65 63 percent of fatal collisions with cyclists and 35 percent of fatal collisions with pedestrians in london despite only making up four percent of mileage so we're still seeing a really, really big role of goods vehicles in in kind of road safety concerns. So we think we need kind of more more leadership on kind of road safety, um, kind of some sort of review of the road safety regime with a, with a recognition of the role of goods vehicles in in road safety concerns, and um, really t- to look at kind of what what the world leading standards are. So we have kind of you know there's different models but the safe system approach kind of looks at you know it in the whole and make sure that collisions are investigated so we can learn from them so i think i think we we need to think kind of let's take a step back and look at the kind of road safety and, and the role of goods vehicles in that and how we can kind of um 
in, in make improvements there. Um, Maggie, what's on your uh, wish list? What would you like to see changed? So, so right now, you know, planning reform is absolutely is absolutely critical, I think, because it, it feels to me that it's hampering so much of, of an inability for people to, to plan for the kind of freight distribution they want and for, for providers to, to make the investments they need to make. You know, it, it would be a win-win for both people if we, we could make some progress on that. But I think Claire's absolutely right about decarbonisation. You know, the same is a little bit true in, in, in rail freight as well. I mean, sometimes... For those of you of a certain age, you'll, you'll remember, I characterise it as computer says no, you know, so you ask government, would you mind electrifying? And they go, no, can't afford it. And you go, well, could we have some HVO? And they say, no, it's safe for the airlines. And you'd say, well, what about hydrogen? They go, well, we might want to put it in the domestic gas networks. And, you know, is there enough lithium in the world for the batteries? Not sure, really. Oh, it's all a bit in Bolivia. And so we've got some legally binding targets set by government. You know, that's a good, that, that's a good thing. It's absolutely the right thing to do. But they've been set by government. But but actually, all the, all the pathways that you'd have to invest to meet that are being closed off to you. And that doesn't mean you can't do things, you know, absolutely. You know, every single tonne of carbon that we save is, is, is a good thing. And sometimes, you know, we focus very much on that 2050 date and forget that we could be doing something tomorrow. So, you know, amongst my members, I'm trying very much to say, okay, you know, yes, it's really complicated and difficult and we don't know what the answer is. And probably, actually, the answer won't, won't be found in the UK Rail Freight Network. It'll be found by global R&D and development in potentially other sectors. But what could we do tomorrow? So, you know, not not stopping trains in loops all the time, you know, smooth paths on the network for freight trains, you know, longer freight trains, which can save disproportionately more carbon every load you put on the back. So, you know, across London now, network rail working on some of the 26. So my, you know, my members network rail again. Well, can we get every terminal up to the position where it can take as a minimum twenty wagons and as a target twenty six wagons? Because we know it's a much better use of capacity, but actually that it's more carbon efficient. So, so, so what's that gain as well? But, but that long term challenge is is absolutely there, and and, and we do need some guidance on it. Um, uh, so coming to the questions. Um, and a good segue into this, actually, somebody's asked, do we know whether um, uh, whether GB Rail Railways will help rail freight grow? What would you like GBR to be doing um, uh, when that gets up and running um, on rail freight? They, the, uh, the William Shucks report says that's uh, an important area. Um, uh, you know, the, the, that's, they're going to have targets for increasing rail freight. Um, the Scottish government's already got those, I think. Um, what would you like GBR to be doing? Yes, I mean GBR. You know, I have set out with a, with a very strong intention to do freight better than 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 it has been done in the past. And you know, I mean, Network Rail today are doing freight better than they've done it in the past as well. So, so you know, there is a lot of optimism about that. I think you know, it's also important to remember that GBR will will own and operate the passenger trains. So I think that, that there are some challenges around their focus as as that becomes a reality, but. But, you know, what, what is it that they can do? So, obviously, there are things around capacity and pass on the network, that you know, the efficiency of pass that we've just talked about. Um, they are the freeholder of quite a pro- high proportion of those urban terminals I've talked about, particularly the construction terminals. So, I think they've got a really important role. And, you know, they are genuinely really good at that, that, that sort of interface with the planning bodies around those land sites. But... You know, are, are we exploiting them as well as we could? Could we do more? How do we develop them to be, you know, really useful urban hubs? Can we make a construction terminal also handle as a freight, et cetera, et cetera? So, so there's some clever thinking around that, that land estate that I think we'd like to see. And then there's all kinds of boring and techie bits about the, sort of the mechanism of the railway around charges and and how we, you know, how we operate. And of course, it's important that we get that right, because if, if rail freight isn't affordable compared to road freight, that, that then we're challenged on that modal shift question. So so some of those the, those techie bits are really important as well. Uh, but at the heart of it, Stephen, I think you're right. You know, we need that that sort of freight as, as, as a core of what we do. You know, Network Rail has been putting passengers first for the last five years, and we need to change that so that actually what what they do responds to freight just as much as it responds to passenger in their thinking. Um, uh, in relation to that, I, I, I wanted to, I, I 
I, I know this will be of interest to um, some of the UGG members, including some I noticed in the participants list. Um, how do you think we resolve um, potential conflicts where um, city regions want their local passenger services to grow um, and the desire to have more freight on rail? Um, how do you think we get uh, we manage that? Do you think um, that they, those can be consistent and work together? Well, I mean, I think they have to be, don't they? Because both ambitions are true, and you know, we we want we we want to grow the railways for the good of the economy and the environment. So we have to find a way of making it true, and you know, that that does require some compromise. I think it's really important that people understand, you know, going back to where we started, that that you know, when they got a parcel today, yes, that van was local, but it came from a warehouse that was national, that came off a ship that was global. So the you can't you can't take put a boundary around the thinking about freight at at a local or a city region level. So some of those freight trains that come through your city region that don't stop are ridiculously annoying. But actually, yes, they're going into a warehouse to offload some goods that they use then later get back on an electric van. Maybe. Mm. Well, is that annoying? You know, it, it shouldn't be annoying to you. And actually. Perhaps it's going through your region and going into our house and delivering stuff to people in a different region, but is that okay? Because you know we all live in a society together, so I think we we just have to be mature about this and understand that it, it is a global network of distribution that ends up playing out on the local level and uh, and finding the ways to do that. And I think in terms of you know capacity on on the network, it, you know it's a difficult thing, but we have to. I think innovate a bit more. There's more technology that we could deploy around traffic management, network planning, uh, network rails, timetabling strategy that I think will help us to, to exploit that capacity, even in a world where perhaps we don't have as much money for, for pouring concrete as, as we might like. So, so we have to find a way through it, don't we? Um, uh, Claire, we uh, there's been a number of questions in the chat about um, things like uh, about urban deliveries. Um, Julian Worth has said, well, clearly 44 tonne articulated vehicles are, are inappropriate for urban deliveries, but if you have smaller vehicles, that means more trips for given volume of freight. Where's the optimum balance? Are we talking 20 to 30 um, tonne uh, battery rigid trucks? Um, uh, somebody else has asked about cargo bikes. Um, uh, is uh, I mean, do you have a view about kind of, um, because you've talked passionately about decarbonising um, uh, the, uh, the remaining uh, road freight in, in urban areas. Um, what, do you have a view about where that takes us? Yeah, I mean, I think it's it's tricky. And, you know, largely operators are going to use the most efficient option because it makes sense for them financially. But I think, you know, we've touched a little bit, but not explicitly on kind of consolidation um, and making the best use of the space in vehicles that are coming in so um it's a really tricky and challenging area and i think it's been you know constrained in some ways by commercial interest because you know different operators are, are operating their own you know deliveries and don't necessarily want to share commercial data or work together on this but it, it you know offers an opportunity to make more efficient use of the vehicles that are coming into our cities um so yeah i think you know in terms of exactly what the right size of vehicles is, it's it's not always clear, is it? Um, you know, if it's one forty-four ton truck versus fifty vans, then potentially you you'll you know that is the more efficient option. But you know, it's it's putting the right um, kind of environment in place for those vehicles to operate safely and efficiently so again comes back to the planning point that you know if you need those vehicles to be coming into a certain space then making sure that you've got the right kind of infrastructure for them if you don't want them to come into a certain space planning for how you kind of keep them out but what you do instead um and and thinking it through strategically um you know we've seen huge growth in van traffic in in the last 20 years you know we did we did a separate report a few years ago focused specifically on on the growth in van traffic um so you know it isn't it's not a simple oh well, let's use more vans and ditch ditch the bigger hdvs um I think it's, I think it's, it, yeah, it's extremely complicated, isn't it? But, you know, where, where there are opportunities to use smaller 
lower zero emission vehicles, more cargo bikes where appropriate. Um, I think we should, you know, incentivize and take every opportunity we can. And I think um, um, coming back to this point around shifting more to rail and water, where we can make sure we've got the urban cities and the, the facilities in the urban core for those deliveries to come in as far as they can on rail and water, that then makes it easier to shift those on to lower and zero emission modes, smaller vehicles when they get into the urban core, because we've got them in further. So we've got those kind of, you know, we can run the electric vans or the cargo bikes from those vehicles when they're getting into, into the cities. And I think I, I, that makes a point about people doing things because it's you know, financially efficient for them to do so. And, you know, I come back to my point that that therefore means that the consumer gets a lower price because, um, you know, in, in a commercial market with, with pretty thin margins, right across freight logistics, that, that obviously it's not completely linear, but there is a link between the cost that you incur and the price that you, you, you pass on. So, so we have to think about pricing as well. And, you know, in a world where, you know, Will the Treasury ever cough on road pricing? I don't know, but Sadiq Khan thinks he's going to go first. So we have to think about how we do that in a way that incentivizes the kind of freight that we want mm. rather than putting in something which is about, you know, a different objective and then ending up with some perversities around the way that freight is priced. So, so if we don't get that right, we end up adding more pressure on consumer prices. So we have to make the things that today would cost more end up costing less by the way we price them. And I, I don't know what the answer is. It's ridiculously complicated. I get that. But but just relentlessly driving up the price of freight by restricting its hours or making it handled more often or, or doing other things to it will end up in prices. And we can make it more effective by depricing the things that we want people to do. I guess. Yeah, I, I was going to I was going to say that because I think it's interesting how like the default with the delivery is free delivery over fifty pounds, say, um, and it will come in two days. But you can pay more for next day. But I always think I always wonder why I'd, if I could get like a discount or it'd be cheaper to get something in a week or two weeks. If I don't need it tomorrow, then why can't I can I pay less to have it? in 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 a longer period of time i ordered something on on monday and it turned up yesterday and i was like i didn't i didn't need this like i didn't need this to come so quickly it could have come next week and i would have been just as happy so yeah i don't know i think there's um yeah that like you say incentivizing the things we want people to do which um yeah could be actually i don't need this for a bit so it can come whenever there's a van coming my way uh, Graham North, uh, who's the North Yorkshire and City of York Rail Officer, has asked an interesting question, which I think relates to some of this, which is how do we get past commercial confidentiality issues among freight operators? And I guess that affects um, rail and road. Um, uh, and uh, in relation, I think, to doing some of the sharing and um, uh, increasing the overall efficiency of the operation of goods vehicles, but also um, potentially of rail freight. So I think it depends why you're asking the question, um, because I mean it's a myth to say it doesn't happen today. People collaborate, particularly in well, I mean, in, in rail all the time, because you know most, you know, the majority of intermodal trains are multi-customer. But you know, within within road freight, then vehicles are um, you know routinely shared between different businesses. It it may be that you know one bread fa factory doesn't want to collaborate with another bread factory, but, you know, it'll move something else. And, you know, the, the Tesco train comes south from Scotland with all sorts of stuff on it, including chipboard and a whole load of other products. So, so that collaboration is out there. Commercial businesses are doing it. You have to understand where, where and why they're not going to do that. And, of course, remember that competition law actually prohibits quite a lot of it. So there is that. But I think there's also a question there, which I see quite a lot, which is people go, I can't do freight because I haven't got any data. Uh, and therefore, I can't plan for freight because I haven't got any data. So what we need to do is have data, data, data. And I think it comes from a mindset of, of public transport where, you know, if you want to know what colour shoes your commuters are using on the tram network, you can, you're in control of that. You can go out and survey it, whatever. And it is a different mindset. And I would say you can plan for freight with some quite macro level data. And we have to really think about what it is the data that we really want, because lots of data that there is, is commercial for good reason. And in some cases, because the law says it has to be. So, so what do we really need to know to be able to plan freight better? Let's focus in on that data and see how we can get that data and whether that's through GPS or, 
or survey or what whatever else. And then in terms of that collaboration, we should put in place the sort of marketplaces that cause people to want to have the conversations that they already have elsewhere around doing that collaboration between business. Um, uh, Graham has uh, clarified that he was talking about light parcels traffic on passenger trains, where he thinks the commercial confidentiality issue might uh, get in the way. Um, that sounds like a discussion to be taken offline, actually. Yeah, I mean, uh, I, I'm not aware that it is. I think, you know, th th there's more of a challenge around, which, which is coming, around the passenger train operators seeing it as a market they want to be involved in. Yeah, but I think that's coming. I think that's coming. Um, so, um, uh, it, that um, it, it, somebody has asked a, an interesting question about has the panel taken into account the online shift? It's particularly by 2028, over 50% of shopping will be online driven by demographics. Um, I, I think, um, you know, you both sort of reflected that. Um, uh, Maggie, how well do you think the rail freight industry is placed to be part of an online, of a predominantly online shopping um, world? So I think, you know, on, online is, isn't... A a miracle, you know, you still have to import goods into the country or produce them in the country and you have to put them in a warehouse somewhere. And I think you know, what you see in online actually is those things are then warehoused rather more than being in a, you know, in the, in the olden days, you'd go into a shop and they'd go in the stock room and get something for you, wouldn't they? And and now they don't have a stock room anymore. Um, they probably have a smaller unit. And if it's not in store, you order it online when you get home. So so we've sort of shifted store room to warehouse and rail plates freight's in a really good place to play in that market because we're seeing you know new strategic rail freight interchanges putting those warehouses on on the railheads which means that those they they can take advantage of rail much more easily because it's it's right next door to them you know literally on the same site and where those developments going in now at places like iport and doncaster and east midlands gateway we're seeing a huge uptake of rail you know east midlands gateway had its official opening just before the pandemic. It's already got five daily trains with plans for others, you know, across the course of this year. So, so those warehouse occupiers are using rail there. So that that's kind of taking on board the inbound, and you know, we can see opportunities for doing more of the sort of next stage of distribution, which is warehouse to warehouse. When we get into that sort of you know to direct to consumer piece, that's where freight on passenger trains and urban urban logistics, uh, the sort of Orion parcel traffic come into play. Uh, but again, I think, you know, we have a, a huge role on that trunk haul, which is all, almost easy. You know, it's where it's air freighted or double like trailer today. We can do that by rail easily. Then we've got to unlock how we want those deliveries to be done in the local region and how rail can best play into that. Um, we're, we're coming up to the end of this. Um, uh, I, um, uh, Claire, would you like to say what you'd like to see happening next? You know, where, where would where, what you know? Do you have some final comments that you'd like to make about where your report will go next and what you'd like to see happen? Yeah, um, so I think it's been a really interesting discussion. I think we picked up on lots of stuff, kind of from the report, but also kind of outside of that as well. And I've really enjoyed hearing from Maggie about what's what's happening and, in the in the. And, um, and sorry, I should, I should interrupt by uh, uh, Michael Whitaker has asked a really interesting quick wins question that you'd like to nominate so uh, he's mentioned planning standards um, uh, but um, do you have other quick wins you'd like to see as well I guess uh, one that I think uh, that is not necessarily a quick win but would win across a lot of kind of our urban policy objectives is thinking about kind of how we use road and street space so uh, you know if we invest in walking and cycling infrastructure then that could incentivize more cargo bike deliveries or more people delivering on foot and and you know as we start to kind of manage traffic thinking about using smaller and lower emission vehicles so I guess it's not necessarily a quick win but what I was going to say is like what what I really hope is that freight can play kind of its role in thriving green livable people-centric places and I think if we kind of 
plan from that perspective then we could we could deliver the cities we want and you know make sure that our goods get to where they need to um you know effectively and efficiently so that's kind of what i hope that we can kind of have freight as part of our strategic vision for our cities and not not an afterthought as we sort of said at the start like we don't want it to be the afterthought we want it to be part of that kind of really ambitious vision for like decarbonized city regions thanks very much i think we've just about reached the end of our time uh sorry maggie i would like to ask you about quick wins um so um i'd like to um thank both claire and maggie for um what they've said um and uh, to all the people who put in questions and chats we've got to most of them we didn't get to canals sorry about that um and i'd like to hand back to becky thank you Thanks, Stephen, and thanks, Claire and Maggie. What a fantastic conversation. I think what came out strongly for me is that um, the net zero challenge is going to force us to come up with more imaginative freight solutions. I love the portering idea. I love the guys in St Thomas example of combining consolidation, riverboats, cargo bikes. That diversity of methods can only help improve the resilience of our networks. And as Maggie said, if we're going to do that, we need to plan for the networks we want and safeguard that land, that curb space and that infrastructure that we need. If you haven't already done so, pop over to our website, take a look at our Deliver in the Future report and keep an eye out for details of our future urban transport next events coming soon. Um, thanks again to our panel and to everyone who took part live, listened in or watched back. Thank you and goodbye.